The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. All of our hope is in you, Jesus. All of my hope for these words that I'm going to speak this morning is in you. There's nothing I'm going to say here that's going to do anything in anyone's heart if you don't act. And so we invite you now into our presence, into the midst of your people here, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work and give us a fresh vision for your greatness. Breakthrough will come, but if there's going to be anything breaking through all the, the things we hear from the world and the swirling words on the news and in the Internet, if anything's going to break through all of that, it's going to be by the power of your Holy Spirit. So would you come now and help us as we look at your word? In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to begin a three-week, three-part series taking an in-depth look at that mission statement up there. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. Now, why should we do this? I mean, why why don't we just go on to the book of Genesis? That's where Pastor Dave is going to go next. I want to try to answer that in two ways. So first, that sentence summarizes what Bethlehem is all about and what it has been about for, oh, the last 26 years or more. In October of 1995, Pastor John preached a sermon introducing that to the congregation as our new mission statement. It's driven everything we do since then. And it will continue to do so into the future. And I think that's because it's based in Scripture and it's proclaiming great truths about God. And we're going to take a look at some of those over the next three weeks. So it would be wise for us to get a firm grasp on it and to understand what we mean by it. Now, maybe some of you were around for that sermon back in 1996. um, And most of us have come since then. And so whether you were here or not, Whether you've heard it a million times or this is the first time you've heard that mission statement, it's good for us to get our minds around what that's saying. The second reason is we've been through a really difficult time over the past couple of years in our culture, our world, our nation, and for most of the past year in our church. It's been kind of strange and confusing, even a bit surreal. So in the midst of these turbulent seas, We need to refresh and clarify what our mission is, what we're supposed to be focused on. And it's easy to lose sight of that. So we're going to take these next three weeks and get our eyes back on the mission that's driven us all these years. So we're going to split this mission statement into three parts. So today my job is to tackle the first part there, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. So if you want the main point of the sermon, there it is. Spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. The next week, David Livingston will look at the next phrase, for the joy of all peoples. And then the third week, Pastor Dave will look at the vital importance of that last phrase, 
through Jesus Christ. That is not just a throwaway phrase at the end. So here's how we're going to approach this today. First, I want to define what we mean by the supremacy of God. What does it mean that God is supreme in all things? We tend to throw that word around a lot. We talk about supreme pizzas. We talk about supreme gasoline, supreme cleaning products. What do we mean when we say God is supreme? Then we'll take a look at four specific ways God is revealed as supreme from Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. So all three of these sermons will focus in on those three chapters of Ephesians. We didn't have time to read all of them, so I just chose the portion I wanted to focus in on most this morning, but we're going to be skipping around in all three of those chapters, so keep your finger in your Bibles there. And then we'll relate all of that to the word passion and talk about the practical difference that understanding these truths about God should make in our lives. All right, so what do we mean? Let's define our terms. What do we mean when we say God is supreme? So I got out my old, a couple weeks ago, I got out my old American Heritage Dictionary off the shelf, and I looked up the word supreme, and it defined it in two ways, two definitions. The first, greatest in power, authority, or rank. And second, greatest in importance, degree, significance, character or achievement. Now, there's a common word in there, right? Greatest, greatest. Now, we live in a world that's increasingly flattening out all relationships. Equality is the watchword of the day. We, we want equality across the board. So the very concept of supremacy in our culture is really becoming, well, to use a word that's often overused, toxic. It evokes negative ideas about white supremacy and other hierarchical relationships that we just view as in a totally negative light. But listen, God is not equal to anyone, and no one is equal to God. He has all the power, all the authority, and he ranks above everyone and everything all the time. In his very essence, he is the most important, the most significant being in the universe, or outside of it, for that matter. He fulfills every word of that definition in that dictionary, and even more. The supremacy of God runs all through the Bible. You can't get away from it. He's the beginning and the end. Genesis 1-1 begins with these words. In the beginning, God... Well, let's just stop there. Before we even go on to talk about what God did, that's what the next rest of the sentence says, think about that. In the beginning, God. Before there was anything else, God just was. He is. I want to put that in the present tense. He is. He always is. So it all starts with him. He's before all things. But then if you look over at Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, verse 13, it says this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So from the first chapter to the last, God presents himself as the beginning and the end, starts with him, ends with him. There's no one greater, no one before him, no one after him, no one above him, or everything is below him. He is at the top of the hierarchy. So listen, if you 
have a problem with hierarchy and you chafe at authority, I want to submit you've got a God problem. You've got a God problem. Scripture paints for us a God who is supreme in all things. You're going to hear me say that phrase. In fact, I may ask you to say it a few times. All things. But since we don't have an infinite amount of time, I'm going to confine myself. As I read through the first three chapters of Ephesians a few weeks ago, I picked out eight things in which God is displayed as supreme. Now, you, you might be able to find more. I found eight. For the sake of time, I'm only going to look at four. So we've got to narrow this down, right, so we, can, we aren't here all day. But these are four huge and glorious things. And I hope what it'll do is just whet your appetite for more of God and stir your hearts to a renewed passion. There's that word, passion, for him. Because I fear that one of the struggles we've had in, a ch- in our church over this past year is that we've taken our eyes off of God, off of the prize. All right. Let's dive in now. Four ways that God is displayed as supreme in these three chapters of Ephesians. Number one, God is supreme in his glory. So here's a radical truth about God. If you've been around Bethlehem, you've probably heard this many times. If you're new, this might really strike you as strange. Everything God does is for his own glory. Everything God does is for his own glory. That's the ultimate aim of it all. Now, what do you think of when you think of God's glory? Do you, do you think of like the Shekinah glory, that light that kind of entered the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem after Solomon finished his prayer of dedication? We think of this bright light. Well, that's, that's how it's often displayed when it appears in the physical world. Or maybe you think of some great beauty, like the beauty of the Grand Canyon, or being out in the country on a dark, starry night, looking up and seeing all those stars, and you're just in awe. Something that inspires awe. Well, if, if you were pressed to actually give a definition of what God's glory is, what, what would you say? I took a stab at that. So here's my attempt. You can take it for what it's worth. It's the revealing of the many-faceted perfections of God in his nature and character. So God is displaying his nature and character, how perfect he is in his nature and character in everything he does. That's his glory. He's displaying his glory. So when we say that everything God does is for his glory, we mean that his plans and purposes are meant to reveal stuff about him. And he does it in such a way that it inspires awe and worship from our hearts. Now, frankly, our culture does not find this kind of God attractive, a God who's all about his own glory. We live in a world where we're continually fed the message that it's all about us. It's all about me. It's about my happiness, my sense of self-worth, what's best for me. Psychology tells us this. Music tells us this. TV and movies tell us this. I call this Disney theology. Disney theology, because they're one of the prime purveyors of it. Follow your heart, find your authentic self, and so forth. Into this, the Word of God speaks and says that 
Really, it's all about God. It's all about God. Even God is all about God. So I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1, and the text that was read includes verses 11 to 14. So let me read these again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. How many things? All things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So those first believers were to the praise of his glory, God saving them. Verse 13, in him you also, that's the Ephesian believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I want you to notice two things there. First, God works all things. Once again, how many things? All things according to the counsel of his will. His will. He has a plan and a purpose, and he's, he has had since the, before time began. And he's moving everything toward the accomplishment of that plan. In fact, it's significant that the phrase all things is repeated throughout this chapter four times. Verse 10, verse 11, and twice in verse 22. Everything is working according to God's plan. Doesn't seem like it sometimes, does it? It is. The second thing I want you to see is that this is intended... All this working out of God's plan is intended to be to the praise of his glory. That's where it's all winding up. That's the goal toward which it's working. His plan and purpose is to glorify himself. And our salvation is simply part of that plan. And I want you to notice that our salvation glorifies him both in its planning and predestining, that's in verses 11 and 12, and in its execution in time and space and on into eternity when we gain our inheritance. And that's in verses 13 and 14. So all these things, including our salvation, are working for his glory. And then over in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the whole point of the church and of its head, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, by the way, is to glorify God. That's the whole point of what we are, why we exist. Paul says it another way over in Romans 11.36. We sang this earlier. For from him and through him and to him are, how many things? All things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So here we see the linking of the ultimate aim of everything with the glory of God. Everything is from him, through him, to him, so that he gets the glory. So, God is supreme in his glory. That's number one. Number two, God is supreme in salvation. That's really what the first chapter of Ephesians is all about. Now, we're accustomed to thinking that as humans, we have the ultimate determinative power over our choices. 
And most of us, frankly, experienced a relationship, first experienced a relationship with Christ that way. We experienced it as a choice to turn away from our sin and put our trust in him. But, but though it may be a blow to our pride and our sense of self-determination, Paul makes clear that the ultimate determinative choice in your salvation is not you, but God. Look at verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 1. Even as he, that is God, chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. When did this happen? Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. So before the world even existed, God chose you. And then in verse 5, we see that he predestined us, predestined us to adoption as sons. So we've already looked at what Paul said a little later in verses 11 to 14 about, us, about our being predestined according to his plans and purposes. Now, if that doesn't speak of God's sovereignty over your salvation, I don't know what does. Now, I know this has been an age-old theological and philosophical debate, and we just don't have time to delve deeply into it, but I would just submit to to you to let these words from God's word speak to you speak what don't don't try to turn them into something saying something other than what they say the concepts of God's sovereign choosing and predestining according to the his plans and purposes and for his glory run all the way through this first chapter of Ephesians and listen I, I didn't write that and guess what John Calvin didn't write it either and neither did Augustine, okay? It is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if we have a problem with it, we have to take it up with the Holy Spirit, ultimately. Now, if that grates against your thinking and everything you've understood about human autonomy and free will, then I have great sympathy on you. I really do. Because I was there once. It did for me for a long time. But in the end, I just couldn't get away from those words. He chose us. He predestined us. And he did this before the world was even created. Now, now don't get me wrong here, okay? We still have to make a choice to follow Jesus. We still have to repent of our sins. But what I'm saying is that before that, there's a sovereign predestining choice that's made by God, not us. Now, that ought to fill your heart with praise rather than theological controversy because we can't save ourselves. We just can't save ourselves. So either God is supreme enough to accomplish this or we're hopeless. So God is supreme in all things, including salvation. So we've seen God's supremacy in his glory, we've seen God's supremacy in salvation. Number three, God is supreme in his power. This is one of the most basic attributes of God. Theologians say that God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord today, guess what? You've already experienced this power in your life. Don't believe me? Take a look at chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. 
Now here Paul is saying what he's praying for the Ephesian believers, and he's praying that they will know something. And one of those things is that they will know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward who? Toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You've experienced, if you're born again, you've experienced the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. Verse 19 calls this power immeasurable. And I've always liked the way that King James put this. His exceeding great power. It's almost like there just aren't enough adjectives to put in front of this word power to get through the idea of how great it is. So it's a power beyond measuring. It's a power that conquers disease and death and sin. It's a power that gives new life to the spiritually dead. It's a power that revealed the gospel to the Apostle Paul. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says that his ministry was given to him by the power of God. And it's a power that's at work in us to enable us to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Paul says that over in chapter 3, verse 20. Now, this is really good news to us because if God were not all-powerful, then everything we've said about him, about all his plans and purposes, might not come to fruition. It might not happen. Might Satan, with all his schemes, or man, with all his scientific knowledge and wisdom, figure out a way to overcome God to thwart his plans? Sometimes we think we can do that. Is the ultimate fate of the universe and all of us in it up for grabs in an eternal battle between God and the forces of evil? When bad things happen, has God lost control? Has God lost control when hurricanes happen, when cancer hits, when pandemics come, when earthquakes happen? Are are they just... You know, maybe God grieves over it and is really sorry about it, but there's really nothing he can do about it. You think think that? Our culture thinks that. In fact, sometimes even in the evangelical church, we present the gospel that way, don't we? Think about it. We often present the gospel as, as if it were God's plan B. You know, God created man in the garden, put him there, man is without sin, and then man sins and falls. And so sending Christ... As a, to take the punishment for our sins is God's plan B so that at least someone is saved. Well, surely the verses we've already looked at ought to lay any notion like that to rest. <laughs> I mean, there's no power greater than God's. And the wonderful application of this to our lives is, is it means that all God's promises to us, even eternal life, will infallibly be fulfilled. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. And I want you to see how Paul applies this certainty to our salvation. So there it says that God raised us up with him and seated, seated. Do you hear the tense of that verb? It's a past tense. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. Okay, I'm standing here. And you're sitting there, so I don't think any of you are there yet. But 
our position there is so assured that Paul can speak in the past tense because God has the power to bring it about. It's going to happen. It's only future from our perspective, not from God's. It's already done as far as he's concerned. Only with God can you say that the future is so certain that you can speak of it as having already happened. That's, that's, I find that just incredible. So God is supreme in his glory. God is supreme in salvation. God is supreme in his power. The fourth, God is supreme in his love. Let me point to three passages here to bring this out. Chapter 1 at the end of verse 4 and going on through verse 5. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. So stay with me as we quickly walk through these. First, I want you to take a look at that little prepositional phrase at the end of verse 4 in chapter 1. In love. In love. Now, scholars are divided about whether that phrase belongs as the tag on the end of the sentence at verse 4 or whether it goes at the beginning of the sentence at verse 5. And frankly, this whole section from verse 3 through verse 14 in the Greek has zero punctuation, so this is all one sentence. So this is why the scholars are having problems figuring out where this phrase goes. I don't think it really makes any difference because all the choosing and all the making holy and all the blameless of verse 4 and the predestining of verse 5 can all correctly be said to be done by God in love. God's saving choice of us is motivated by his love for us. Now, I'm going to ask a question here. How does that square with what we said earlier about God's ultimate aim in everything being his own glory? We don't normally think of people who are all about their own glory being loving. They're not really loving people. But listen, what is true about God is not, what was true about man is not necessarily true about God. In fact, for God, having his own glory as his ultimate purpose is really the best way he can love us. Think about it this way. Is not love most shown by giving the loved one the greatest possible gift you can give? Isn't that one way we can really express the greatest love, by giving the loved one the, the greatest gift we can think of? Isn't that exactly what God does when he gives us salvation? He gives us himself. He gives us himself. He gives us himself through Jesus Christ for our joy and for his glory. This is what we mean when we say God is the gospel. That, somebody wrote a book by that title one time, I think. Second thing I want you to see is in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because, that's a really important word there, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So did you catch that there? God's rich mercy in giving us new life is grounded in his love. That's what that word because means. That's the ground of his being rich in mercy toward us. Despite all our sin against him, his love drives him toward mercy. I, I mean, that's just awesome. How, how does the holy God 
have a love that drives him toward mercy toward sinners who are rebelling against him. That's just amazing. And then finally look at chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. There we see Paul praying for the Ephesian believers that God will grant them strength so that being rooted and grounded in love, they will be able to comprehend, I love this, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Did you ever think about this? No wonder we need God's infinite power because he wants us to know a love that surpasses knowledge. We can't know it. We can't know it. How are we going to know something that can't be known? Only by the power of God. If God does not supernaturally reveal it to our hearts, we aren't going to know this. So that's how supreme God's love is. He loves you with a love that's beyond your ability to know. And then he's going to give you an ability to know it, at least in some small way. And he wants you to know it. He wants you to comprehend how much he loves you. No one loves like our God. He is supreme in his love. All right, so we've taken a look at four ways God is revealed as supreme in chapter 1 of Ephesians. In his glory, in salvation, in his power, and in his love. Now, the application part of this is going to come in that first phrase of our mission statement, spreading a passion for this supremacy of God. Spreading a passion. We exist to spread this passion. Let it be the aim of your life, not merely to know and believe these truths that we've talked about, to not just understand them as, as good doctrine, but to have them so affect you that it reorients your whole life around God. He's at the center. He's the center of gravity of your life. Now, we've sampled just a little bit of God's supremacy and seen that even as transcendent as he is, he's also intimately near to us. His supremacy and his love brings him near to us. Doesn't that arouse passion in your heart? Isn't there any stirring of emotion as a result of that? Listen, I know we don't live by our feelings. We, they, they don't rule a day. But if we can be awed by the stars on a dark night, or we can be awed standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon, how can we not be awed by this God? Now, when we're passionate about something, we rarely keep it to ourselves, right? So if you're passionate about the Packers, I mean, uh, okay, <laughs> wrong audience, okay? That, that would be for me personally, but if you're passionate about the Vikings, you want to share that with others, right? You want to get together and watch the game? How many of you are going to do that this afternoon? If, <laughs> if you're passionate about cooking, you want to cook great meals and you want to serve them. You don't want to just cook them and leave them on the shelf. You want to serve them to others. Whatever you're passionate about, any hobby or pursuit, you want to talk about it. You want others to share your joy in it. In fact, we might say that sharing that joy, that the joy that you have, kind of completes that joy or even increases that joy. So that leads us to this spreading aspect. If we cultivate a passion for this God, we will want to spread it. 
So, so let's think about spreading in two ways. First, we want to spread this passion for God into every nook and cranny of our own lives. I want you to think about spreading it into your own life so that Jesus isn't just supreme in your life at church or at Bible study, but he's supreme when you're eating breakfast, when you're doing the laundry, when you're changing the diapers, when you're raking the leaves, when you're dealing with a difficult boss at work, or when the doctor returns a diagnosis of cancer. He's still supreme. Here's how Pastor John put it in that sermon back in 1995. Our mission is to soak life with the supremacy of God. Our mission is to bring all of life into connection with God. Our mission is to exult in the fact that there is not a square inch of this planet or a single moment in time over which God does not say, Mine! Our mission is to live in the presence of God every moment of every day, everywhere we are, and savor his supremacy there. So that's how I want you to spread it into all of your life. The second way I want you to think about spreading is probably the way you're already thinking about it, namely sharing your joy in Christ with others. This is what ought to motivate our heart for missions, and we've talked about that the last couple of weeks, and Pastor David, will, I'm sure, will include that in the joy of all peoples that he's going to talk about next week. And it's what ought to motivate us to go to our neighbors, our co-workers. So don't let these wonderful truths about God's supremacy in all things just be something that fills you with a lot of head knowledge. This God is not merely supreme and sovereign. He's supremely satisfying as well. And in a world where rates of depression and suicide are skyrocketing and families are falling apart and the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power leaves us empty and unfulfilled, Jesus is really the only one who can satisfy the longing in your soul. He's the only one. He's a Lord to be obeyed. He's a Savior who loves you. He who was and is God, Jesus, took on human flesh and died for our sins, rising again from the dead to bring us into a relationship with the Father. Isn't he to be treasured above all else? What, what else would you compare him to? What else would compete for your affections? Now, I want to close with just a brief word to some of you. This, this may not be all of you. It's probably been you at some point in your life. But I realize that there are some of you here who have believed these truths for years. You've loved God, but right now your soul is dry. You've got nothing. God seems distant, far away. Maybe it's something that's going on in your life. Maybe it's just a dry season. I don't know. And this passion that I'm talking about seems a million miles away. How can you get it back? How can you fight to get this joy, this passion back in your life? I mean, we don't want to whip it up in some kind of phony way. We're not just seeking after some emotional experience here. So to answer that, we'll take another sermon. So we're not going to do that today. But let me just acknowledge, I just want to affirm you and acknowledge that this is an experience of genuine believers. This is not strange if you're going through it. I've gone through it. Most of us have gone through it at one point or another. The fight for joy and passion isn't easy. 
But listen, it has to begin with a lingering meditation on who God is in his supreme glory and power and wisdom and mercy and grace and how much he loves us. That 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 God of all power and glory comes to you and loves you. And if, if that doesn't If that doesn't land on you, just let that wash over your soul and begin right there. So I'm I'm just really, I know I'm giving you just the start of climbing out of a dry season in your spiritual life, but it has to start there. So just let that work in your heart. And from that place, standing on these truths and confident in God's love for you, whether you feel it or not, from that place, you can fight for joy in God that will move you to a passion for his supremacy in all things. Let me pray. Well, you are the God of all glory, of all salvation, of all power, and of all love. And you are a God who is supreme in a dozen other ways as well. hundreds, thousands of other ways. You're supreme in all things. And so, Lord, if we're dry right now, if we're, we're not sensing that passion rising up in our hearts, would you do that stirring right now? That's something only you can do by your Spirit. And if we're feeling it bubbling up inside of us, and if we if we want to see that kind of passion in our lives and and we sense that that you're causing that to happen within us, would you spread it out to every nook and cranny of our own lives and then out from there to others that we come in contact with every day? We want to magnify you as the supreme sovereign God in all things, in all of life, all the time. So thank you for your great love and thank you for your great power. Thank you that you are both transcendent and imminent right here with us now. And as we come to the communion table, help us meditate on that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.